Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and we've got a really long show today, so I'm going to make my intro as quick as possible. Uh, You're going to be hearing from Rob Nelson, who is a biologist, a TV presenter. He was a podcaster at one point. Uh, He is also an an author, all-round really interesting and great guy. Uh, you can check out all the stuff that we talk about. Um, probably the easiest thing for me to do is give you one location. Visit his website, stoneageman.com. Uh, we're going to talk about radioactive wolves, uh, whether species should be reintroduced. We're going to talk about the red wolf, which some of you might have never heard of before. Um, his new book, Fire Ecology, Hunting for Management, Filming in Chernobyl. And that is just a tiny fraction of what you're going to enjoy in this podcast. But before we get into that, a very quick shout out and thank you to all of the Patreon supporters. And in the top tier this week, we have Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin Normandale, James Marchington, the guys at South Ash Stalking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, and Mark Zabrowski. And there has been a couple of uh, new patrons in the last couple of weeks. So welcome and thank you very much. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. Every single pound or dollar makes a massive difference in being able to put this show together. And if you ever want to check out more about, um, you know, what what I'm up to and the projects that I'm working on, then just go over to uh, byronpace.com, B-Y-R-O-N-P-A-C-E dot com. We have a winner from the competition we ran two weeks ago with our partner on this podcast, Modern Huntsman, and you can check out all about them on modernhuntsman.com. And I asked you to leave uh, a review or rate the show, and I picked somebody completely at random, and the winner is Colin Stell. Um, I'm not actually quite sure what part of the world you're in, Colin, but congratulations. And Colin wrote, uh, he left a review uh, I started listening to the Into the Wilderness podcast after I found it on Modern Huntsman, and I am hooked. I love learning about conservation, science, hunting, and everything in the outdoor world from Byron and his guests. Uh, I really, really appreciate that review. It's not going to be a review to win a copy of Modern Huntsman for this month, but reviews do massively help. Uh, so do ratings. So please, if you have 30 seconds, head over to wherever you listen to the show and rate and or review. Of course, I have another competition, which is to win your very own copy of Modern Huntsman. And it's going to be very easy. Just head over to the Modern Huntsman website, which, as I said, is modernhuntsman.com and subscribe to their mailing list. Uh, They only send out a newsletter, I think, once a week, uh, but it's really packed full of great content. And it gives you an update on any of the the online uh, column contributions, uh, some of the deals, some of the new merch. It's not junk. So head over, subscribe. We'll have a look at all the, the new subscribers uh, and over these two weeks and uh, pick somebody at random to, to win a copy. So I think that's it from me. Uh, We're going to jump straight into this amazing show with Rob Nelson. Rob, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am so excited to have you on today. I have been looking forward to actually sitting down and having a conversation on this podcast, on my podcast with you, since you first reached out, which I think was March this year, 2020, was it? 
Yeah, I think so. And me too, because I was like, wow, somebody who gets it. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, 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 I can't remember. Um, I think you messaged me on socials. What was the connection? Because we, it turns out, like, since we've spoken, that we actually know quite a lot of the same people. But mm-hmm. um, I didn't know yeah. that when you first reached out. Um, well, I definitely saw what you were doing first when you went to Africa, to Namibia, because I had been in Namibia before, but I saw uh, your friend Cara Santa Maria and um, and that group when you were doing, I think it was a trophy oh, hunting. Oh, but the photos you took and uh, kind of the, the stuff that you were writing about was really interesting. So, so I just reached out to you then. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that you did because now six months later, uh, we're still in a pandemic <laughs> because when we talked on the phone, it was March. So it was like at the, at the height of the start. Um, and now we're in, uh, now we're in November and we're basically in the same position. Um, <laughs> how's things with you over there? We're in England over the wall, over the wall south of where I live in Scotland. Uh, they've just gone back into full scale lockdown. Um, yeah, I think I'm reaching the edge of my sanity. Uh, <laughs> I can handle it for so long and, and I've definitely decided maybe I should just get it. I don't know, but, um, yeah, it's or Maybe you've already had it. Have Mental you had an antibody test? Hmm? Maybe you've already had it. Have you had an antibody test? Well, I tell you, <laughs> my wife is inside right at the moment quarantining herself because she is coughing and has a sore throat and a fever. And oh. she was supposed to film with Science Channel today because she does the same things I do. And she had to cancel. So I don't know. Maybe we have it. <laughs> oh, you never know. So uh, just uh, give me a little bit of your, your background because you're, you're a biologist or an ecologist. Well, I know that there's kind of crossover there, but uh, I can't remember, I can't yeah, remember exactly I, what your background was. I tell was. people different things depending on their background in science. But I have a degree, a master's degree in ecology, okay. population ecology and behavioral ecology. But then I also have a master's degree in science filmmaking. So oh, that's wow. allowed you, me to you just do thought, a ah, lot. I'll do two yeah. master's. Why not? Might as well, right? Yeah, no, it actually, it's frustrating when I see people flaunting their PhDs because I've done way more schooling than them, but I <laughs> still don't have that doctorate. Well, I'm, 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 I'm charging through my <laughs> master's right now. Oh, nice. Yeah. In, um, in, in biodi- uh, biodiversity, um, uh, biodiversity and conservation. Okay. Yeah, great. at Edinburgh University. So, uh, but that'll be, I, I did, I have half another master's in petroleum engineering in a previous life, which I never finished because I got a job. Um, but this one's far more interesting to, to me. Although going back to school and getting into that mindset of like writing papers is, uh, is taken a little bit of an adjustment. Yes. Um, well, I just finished a new book, which feels like a thesis. I know we're going to talk um, about that. Yeah, not trying to pitch it. Yeah. Oh no, I'm just that's saying, okay. You can. I you get can. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, shit. We're talking. We're talking about it now. So, uh, <laughs> uh, is, oh, right. can you actually buy it? Is it ready? Yeah, to buy? you can actually buy it on Amazon. It's called Mother Nature's Not Trying to Kill You. Definitely something we should talk about because it's all about how a lot of animals can kill you, but really, it's it's not that they're out to kill you. Yeah. So I mean, it's a survival guide. If you take all the big animals and it's like, how would you not let a rhino kill you? How would you not let an elephant kill you? It's really okay. fun. I'm excited about well, it. Well, yeah, yeah, I can, we can maybe dig into something which I've only talked about once when we talk about elephants. But um, I, I think the perfect example of this is that recent video with the cougar, which you, oh, talk, which you talked about on your really rather brilliant Instagram account because you put a lot of videos up there. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit. But you know, I think that, um, <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you because you made me <laughs> piss myself with laughter. <laughs> what, last really? Week with the with the like half a dead chicken in your pillow. Oh my god! <laughs> yes. yes, yes. Tell me you about know, this before we talk know, about the cougar. <laughs> feather pillows have chicken pieces in them, apparently, and I found half of a chicken in mine. Was that it in was like the middle of the night or something? Well, I had been using uh, that pillow for a year or two, and then I gave it to my wife, and she was like, what is this thing? She felt it and thought it was a rat and couldn't sleep, and it was in the middle of the night. And so that's why I didn't take the pillow out. I didn't want to leave bed. She turns on the lights and films it, and then we cut the whole pillow open, and it turns out it's a chicken butt. So crazy, so crazy. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I can I can see how that would happen in these mass processing plants where they're just yeah. chucking ch- chucking chickens through pluckers. Yeah, <laughs> a little yeah, bit of chicken gets sucked through. through. Yeah. How many other people with pill- with uh, feather pillows also have bits of chicken in them? Now everyone who's listening <laughs> to this podcast who has feather something is going to be wondering: Do I have a piece of chicken <laughs> in my pillow? Well, apparently that's a thing if your pillow comes from Appalachia. And it's a, a sign of good luck. What? Seriously? I sent me an article about it. Yeah, there's a name for it. I forget the name. But yeah, if you find the tail end of a chicken. <laughs> well, there you go. Okay, anyway, back to cougars, yeah. um, because this, to, links, this, to links to your, uh, this links to your book. Uh, for the background of people who have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, is there was this video that actually got sent to me. I think it went viral on Facebook, and then somebody sent it to me. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was somebody who I think they were on a hike or running or whatever on a trail up a mountain. And the video starts with them sort of looking at a, a cougar, otherwise known as mountain lion, uh, on this trail. And it's kind of hissing and stomping its feet a little bit and pushing the person back up the trail. And of course, it was very, very sensationalized, you know, a cougar attacks or charges or whatever the terminology was that used. Talk me through that because you did a really great job of like breaking down that video. Um, yeah. And you, I guess so, you probably already done it in your book, even though the, the, that was probably written before the video came out. Yeah. Well, we, yeah. So um, just to kind of like emphasize what was happening in the video, it was, it wasn't so a guy stumbled across the kittens. Um, you don't see that uh, in the in the video, do you? The kittens. You do see at the very beginning him filming a kitten, and actually, it looks like maybe a second kitten kind of was crossing the road, and he was still moving forward, which I would have done too if I saw a kitten. I'd have been like, "Oh, that's cool," because maybe it's a bobcat kitten. You might not have known it was a a, a mountain lion kitten, and so he's kind of moving forward. It looked like he was. I think he was on a run. So really no blame on his part um, because he was just there. And then all of a sudden out of the bush charges this cougar, which, you know, is totally to be expected. Most mothers of predator, predator mothers, bears and stuff, they're very defensive of their, well, actually really all mothers. And so this was to be expected. What, What was really unusual is that it then continued to kind of move towards him and do bluff charges for six minutes. And I think that was what was unusual. And, and what confused people is that half of the comments on social seem to be like, he's, you know, the sensational headlines where he's stalking. Oh, that was it. That was the word. Yeah. Yeah. Stalking. Yeah. Which, you know, as biologists, uh, it's, 
I am okay with people not knowing terms. In this case, it's probably important to define the term stalking. Like if a cougar is stalking you, you're not going to see it. You're not going to know (laughs) until it's too late. It's going to be crouched down. It's like, you know, if you've ever seen a kitten or a cat stalking a bird, like you don't see it. It, you know, it sneaks up on that bird and then it pounces. And the same thing is true for cougars. And so it wasn't stalking. It was doing more like bluff charges. I think from the other side of comments, though, that I saw was that people said, well, he's it's just kindly escorting him away from the from the cubs, which I think I'm just a little bit concerned that people are so confident that that's exactly what happened, because this is really unusual. Six minutes of this is really weird. Um, and I don't think there's ever been a documented case of this before. So we're dealing with something that's a little bit unique. But, you know, the important thing to remember is all animals are quite different. So you can't generalize every animal encounter. And so in this case, yeah, it was doing tons of bluff charges. And the guy did the right thing by, one, looking right at the cougar. And uh, two, finally, in the end, throwing something at it to get it to leave. Because it, from some of the experts I talked to, they think maybe what happened is it kind of, it got itself in a loop. So it's, you know, it kept approaching this guy and doing bluff charges, but never had a a cue to turn around and go back to the kittens because it was just kind of in this loop of like, this is working, keeping this guy away. And and the main thing in the cougar's mind is protect, protect my offspring. That's why it's doing what it's doing. Yeah. And then, you know, I think it's also just valuable to understand that, the cougar is probably pumped with hormones right now. And the hormones are what's controlling the brain of that cougar at the point, at that point, much like when you get into fight or flight mode, like you, you're not thinking so much, you're just doing. And that's, that's, I think probably part of it too. So I don't think it was going to attack him, but it could have. And I think it would have, you know, it would have been, a different outcome <laughs> yeah so uh, did, did you did you cover um cougars in your book how to survive cougars um i you know that <laughs> big cats i covered a little bit light but yeah they're in there they're in there they're a little bit light um i i uh i was up against deadlines and so we have a whole bunch of animals and the last chapter i had to write was on the big cats and so i did it i did it but it's a little light so yeah. just to backtrack though so what was the mm-hmm. catalyst for you start um you know putting pen to paper for the first time cuz you wrote this book with your wife did you yeah um that's cool yeah so yeah you know i i this is my first well second dabble into publishing but the first time where i ever got contacted by a publisher they reached out to me and said they would be really interested in me writing a book on something the original book was supposed to be something about how to survive the unexpected so i've had a lot of uh encounters with death (laughs) so to speak not by my own choosing but things that I've had to survive, um, close, close encounters. And so it wasn't going to be all about wildlife, but when I started jotting down ideas, I just decided because I'm a biologist, I don't think I would be interested in talking about all natural disasters, like what to do if you're in a cave collapsing or a avalanche or, a, you know, all these different scenarios. We, we adjusted the book slightly as we went and yeah, it was a publisher reaching out to me and it just kind of happened. I thought, and and actually the other thing is I have a YouTube channel where I talk about all this all the time anyway, but YouTube doesn't really pay that much. And I thought, you know, it'd be nice to have a product where maybe people, if they want to support me, can buy it. So that was part of what it was too. 
which is, you know, that's less about the science of things, but also just kind of how my brain thinks. So this is the first time I've, I've had a product. So how, what was the process of putting a book like that together? Uh, I, so in terms of like the research, so let's, let's take oh ele- elephants, for example, because that's, some, that's uh-huh. a species that I've spent a lot of time with yep. and have a bit of an experience of uh, yeah, sur- okay. surviving ele- elephants in the wrong circumstances. Um, well, the greatest, uh, I'm so happy I was able to write the book because it allowed me to spend a ton of time on all these animals. So elephants, for example, I basically went on YouTube and looked at every elephant attack. Okay. Ever. <laughs> as many as I could find for two days straight, probably, which is really fun. And then I read all of the, you know, I'd type in how to survive an elephant attack and read what everybody else wrote and see, try to feel like, is there anything out there that's decent? Sometimes there's not. And then I would contact an expert in the field. So in this case, the elephants was Stephanie Schuttler, who, um, fancy scientist is her handle. Uh, she walked me through what she thought. And, and then I started just kind of writing it out as in um, I would give the basic biology and what we understand about their interaction with humans. And then it, I'd go into best practices, what's the most dangerous situation, those kind of things. Um, and I, with a lot of these, the, the, the really, I should probably back up. The reason I am really was really inspired to write something exactly like this is because of all the filmmaking that I've done, I've found that. Every biologist will tell me that their study species, this is on camera, they'll tell me this, their study species is totally misunderstood and that they're safe and that we shouldn't be bothered by them, right? Yep. This is elephants and big cats, um, sharks. I do a lot of work with sharks and like rattlesnakes. Like I had a, an enc- encounter <laughs> where I was with these researchers and generally when I'm around these animals with them, I just assume they'll tell me. Uh, when things are safe and when they're not. And everybody first says they're safe. And then when the cameras aren't running, I ha- I've realized I have to ask them now, now legitimately, what, what do I do in these situations? <laughs> and with the rattlesnake, they were like, I was like, so we just stay still, right? If it comes at you and they're like, what? Hell no, 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 no. <laughs> you, you run. I was like, really? You just said they were totally fine. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, yeah, but you know, yeah, it'll kill you. So you got to run. <laughs> but this is, I mean, we're, we're laughing, but this is actually so quite is a my... serious problem in terms of the communication of science, because I mean, it's, it's like smudging the truth here. And I think this, this speaks a lot to a lot of the problems that we have in, in communicating real world conservation, because we tell these, and this was actually right. one of the reasons that I started filming this documentary that I'm still working on, uh, moving elephants from Namibia to the Congo was that the the reality of conservation is very often blood is spilled, it's mm-hmm. messy, um, things die, and it's the outcomes are not always what you want them to be. And it's not this kind of fairy tale ending of, you know, we moved you move a whole heap of game to a new place and the gates open and everything goes out and the sun is setting and it's beautiful and you know everyone's just so happy and everything lives uh, happily ever after like that just mm-hmm. doesn't happen and i and I, I actually long story that i'm not going to get into but i ended up with in a bit of an argument with a vet um about trying like actually telling these true stories and showing some of these uncomfortable truths because i think it it helps people understand how difficult conservation is. And we very often, especially when it comes to documentaries, and actually I want to talk to you about the, the, yeah. the Wolf documentary because I think this is quite a good example that you were involved oh, in. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this shit gets cut out. 
And then you end up with the story presented to the public, which is half the truth. And no wonder people have a distorted perception. Yeah, you know, it's a problem. I So my background with the Namibia thing, which is where you went, um, is that I went there to study, uh, to do a film about um, animal tagging and how these tags via the International Space Station are going to be allowed are going to help decrease poaching and stuff because they can listen for helicopters and they can tell when an elephant stops moving and stuff like that, like instantly alert people. But the process of tagging, which was so fascinating, is we'd get in these helicopters and shoot elephants. <laughs> yeah. And then we'd do the same with all the other animals. And it was so interesting. And when it came down to it, they wouldn't let me show any shots of the animal on the ground because often there's a little bit of blood from a tranquilizer yeah. dart or them getting cut in the bush. Very nice. And then they, it, it, they felt like it looked like the animals were dead and that people would be turned off and not support the work they were doing. But it's like, well, okay, but like now how am I going to tell the story? <laughs> yeah. So I had to use footage of us just driving around in a car and a few random shots that I could shoot of elephants not darted. I hate that. Like, I hate that you had to do that because this is exactly yeah. the kind of thing that I'm talking about because it it, it really does not portray uh, the realities of work like well, that. Well, and I'll tell you the problem. The problem is all related to funding, and that's why I'm a big proponent of, pe proponent of people independently funding, funding documentary people or reporters and stuff because if you're funded, say, I was funded by the scientists, they're paranoid about losing funding, and... I have a responsibility to them and they trust me because they know I'm not going to put out info that makes them look bad. But in the end, they're risk averse and they don't want to put it out. So then I, I have zero content to put out that's really what happened. And it's the same thing when we do TV. It's just a slightly different version of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, fascinating. Um, fascinating, but concerning in a way. I mean, you're 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 kind of getting by this now by creating a lot of content yourself, off your off your yeah. own back, and you're you, you've got Patreon supporters, yeah. and you have a YouTube channel, and, and it, was that yeah, one of the reasons that you wanted to do that? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I I created Patreon in my own thing because I was I didn't like being held. Um, it's almost like you feel like you're held hostage by executives. You know, you could have a like uh, 2017, three years ago, I was hosting, I was on the road for five months on, with TV productions. And then almost overnight, I didn't have a job because somebody thought, like everybody was like, we can't get enough of Rob. And then all of a sudden, we don't want Rob. So I'm like, I don't know who made that decision. For any, did, did, did you, did you say something? <laughs> well, I asked around and nobody seemed to. Well, what happens is there's these trends. Like, like at one point, people will like a scientist that has cred. That was me, I suppose. And then they'll want um, celebrities doing science shows, you know, <laughs> or then they'll, you know, who uh, knows? There's a really good, go there's a really good example of that right now uh, with Zac Efron's show. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that is the trend that happened yeah. that kind of kicked that's me out. That's one of the worst shows on Netflix right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, my wife loves it, so I don't know. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. I, I just think it could have been done so much better. I like the concept of it. It just it would have been nice if a scientist had actually presented it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> but you know the, the weird thing is, I, I think getting back to your issue of why do not pe why do people not want to show the reality? 
it's worrisome to me that the public is in the state where they are they will not accept it. And we also live in a culture where like people are risk averse because they're afraid someone's going to call out a scientist or an institution. And I don't know if they would necessarily can't like quote unquote cancel them as we'd use it today for that, but they're worried about public outrage of course, over something that's natural because people aren't familiar with, you know, hunting and conservation where you're shooting to dart animals. And maybe sometimes you have to cull some animals, that kind of thing. Like people are just not familiar with it. And so because of that, it's distorting reality. They're, they're used to watching Disney shows and avatar and things where you have to be outraged by any, it's fine i mean it's but i'm like how do we how do we kind of push back on it yeah how do you break that cycle uh and that's i mean that was kind of the reason that i started making film why i picked up a camera Mm. and started videoing stuff was because i felt that there were a lot of quite controversial and complicated topics that were very one-sided and very polar and we were never really getting to the bottom of what the what what is the truth like what what does the science truly say if you remove the rhetoric and it's quite difficult to cut through that especially in a world that it, everybody can have an opinion and i'm uh, i mean i've said it before but like everyone is welcome to opinion an opinion that is the the joy of living in a country where we're we're free to speak our mind but it doesn't mean that everyone's opinion should be viewed with equal weight because not everyone has the same exper- experience and expertise. Well, and I think that I think that your podcast is also working to help with that because many of the topics can't be explored in a Twitter tweet in a <laughs> no, yes, no. In a, or even a, a longer post. Um, I find a problem even on YouTube if I'm trying to keep under 10 minutes. Like sometimes some of these topics can't be explored in 10 minutes as much as I try. And the topics can be fairly simple. (laughs) Um, So longer form stuff is really nice because it's all about the nuance. And I wish people would think that everything is complicated. (laughs) But it's difficult to keep people engaged. I I mean, this is something that's been thrashed to death is this this idea of the the new age short attention span because of so many characters with tweets and how people consume media now. And I find myself even guilty of it, not because I'm like lazy at wanting to read something that's long form because I I write long form stuff in publications that that I, I, I write and contribute to. But... I think the kind of modern life is just so freaking busy. <laughs> They're like, oh, I don't have time to read uh, an article now that's going to take me 15 minutes. Where really that's not a, a great deal of time. But what can you really gain from two paragraphs, which is what you might find time, or the caption underneath an Instagram post? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I feel like everybody should start with their post saying, it's complicated. But here's it's complicated, my but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't hey, just, know the solution around it, but good job with this podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I mean, this is why I have people like you on, because it's uh, it, <laughs> so that we can illuminate things like a cougar, um, in inverted commas, charging or stalking uh, somebody up a trail. Uh, just going back to elephants, I want, I want to bring that to a close and then talk about the book a little bit more. So what was the, because we, we got sidetracked, which is absolutely fine. Uh, but what uh, what was the outcome of that? So what, what do you do? from your conversations and all the videos that you watched and speaking to experts. Yeah. So the, um, the, 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 the elephant thing is really interesting because I had experts disagree. I'm not <laughs> surprised by that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, 
the the gist with elephants is it's really important to understand their behavior. And I'm a big fan of trying to look at the evolutionary history of all of these individual animals. And with elephants, they've interacted with humans a lot. So North American species there that say um, kind of the whole area that didn't have humans for a while, they're, they're reacting to other stimuli, maybe not human related stimuli. So elephants are going to react. Um, they're going to be able to read human behavior a little bit differently, so to speak. Uh, so, you have to under you have to try to look at the elephant and if you can see if it's doing a bluff charge or it's actually trying to engage in an actual charge so that's kind of the first step but that's really tricky if you don't know what's going on but essentially if you if you can get to a, another level if it's a bluff charge you stand your ground <laughs> if it's not a bluff charge you, you run that's kind of the tricky thing um I've had the, some of the experts said, well, I, I agree or I disagree. I think you should always run. And then I had other people say, I disagree. You should always stand your ground because they're almost never going to charge you. The problem, the problem arises when um, you get that rare person who always stood their ground and then they die, which I've read many reports of guides. And with an elephant, like that happens sometimes. And, and there's a lot of stories of that. So it's like kind of scary. Um, the best thing would be if you bring a speaker system with African B sounds. Oh, yeah, because they, that's actually one of the ways that like they try and move elephants yeah. off areas or keep them out of crops is mm-hmm. speakers with bees on fences. Right. Right. But I would say the general rules, if I was to break it down into points, is stay calm. Um, show them you're not a threat. So um, just like real calm behavior, give them space. So you can kind of slowly back away a little bit. If they get a little bit too close, some people yell. So those are like four things. But if it's a, if it's an actual charge, then you need to run as fast as you can, like in a zigzag pattern (laughs) and potentially try to get something big in between you and the elephant. But that doesn't mean climb a tree because they'll just plow down a tree. So those are like pointed ways to avoid an elephant. Mostly you just want to avoid it all at the very beginning. Because a lot of people get get um, like one if if there's a bull in must, uh, those are real dangerous because they're pumped with testosterone. And some people get a little too close to a herd. That's generally just going to like you don't want to spook an elephant. Elephants aren't predators, so you want to you don't want to sneak up on them. They'll they'll freak out and, and attack. Definitely don't attack. Uh, uh, approach a baby, and and don't keep food near your dwelling. Those would be all kind of things I would say. Because sometimes people, you know, if elephants are hungry and then they have, they're instantly in contact with the elephant. Yeah. It's uh, when we were in, um, we had an experience of this in, um, in DRC, actually, uh, when we would, when I was making, making that documentary. Um, and interestingly, more elephant charges happen in Africa with females than males. Um, that's far more common and even not related to actually having calves. Uh, and it's just because it, they're a matriarchal society. So a lot of the um, d- defense and any challenging that goes on will happen from females. And I was speaking to um, a PH in in Namibia um, some a month or two months after we got back from Congo, and we were talking about elephant charges. And uh, most of the PHs who have been killed have been killed by females, not males. 
Um, but we, I, I mean, I, I, I've talked about this once before in limited detail, but um, we had a case when we were releasing, it was elephants that had been sort of relocated to this place that we were at in DRC. And uh, a, a situation where with no warning really whatsoever, um, we got charged and it was from a fairly short distance with not really anywhere to go. And, you know, someone, a friend of mine who had worked and understood these elephants for like 20 plus years, had worked with these actual elephants that had been relocated. You know, he was with us. He's also a PH. And um, he was happened to be the last person to turn around as we were running away because he knew immediately that it started to come through the bush that there was this was this was no bluff charge this was no joke, um, and he got he got caught by the elephant and ended up in a really really bad way and he was very very lucky to live. Um, oh, did it? It ended up hitting him. Yep, and yep, yep. goring him or something a little bit. Yeah, no, it was it was pretty pretty horrendous, and um, he was you know teetering on the on the border of not surviving that that incident and there is someone who absolutely understood and could read um elephants and he'd worked with these animals his whole life and i think a good take-home elephants are a great example is that you never know what the last interaction of that animal was and people i think sometimes have this understanding that animals should be more like robots they don't they don't kind of personify them as, as we would with humans. It's like, we understand if you have a kind of a, a crazy person, you know, maybe they just had a really bad day and you don't want to mess with that person. Then, well, an elephant is super smart and they could have been the same, like it could have had a poacher was the last interaction and they're so pissed with humans. You just don't know. So you, you have to be know. real careful. I mean, we, and we, can, we, know, we, we, 4,000 pounds is how big elephants get. Oh, they, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're a big stops. animal. There's no stopping them. So no. I mean, we we evaluated a little bit after the fact, um, and it's imp- it's really impossible to know. Other than, I mean, one of the things that we discussed in you know some weeks later in, in the calm light of day was that they'd mo- been moved from an area that was not not barren, but it was Namibia. It's semi-arid. Um, it, they'd had many many years of drought, and so there wasn't a lot of grass and. Elephants there were used to being able to see people from a long distance away and make you know evaluation judgments. Um, in the middle of DRC, it's very very different type of terrain. It's still there was historically um, elephants there. I mean, not not forest dwelling elephants, but um, savanna um, southern savanna elephants. Uh, but it is very very different different terrain. So their their line of sight is much shorter. It also happened as we only found out. Uh, maybe two months later, is she was actually in calf. Uh, but you couldn't have possibly known that at the time. Um, but anyway, yeah, you're right. To, 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 you, to your point, you don't quite know what the circumstances are or or even the trauma, and this goes to what I was saying about earlier, the trauma of relocating elephants two and a half thousand kilometers to another location for all of the right reasons. They were being relocated because the area that they had come from couldn't support that number of elephants anymore. They'd had a, a, an amazing program and an amazing success on a very big farm in Namibia and a, a combination of drought and just the, the size of the area. They couldn't support that number of elephants anymore. So what do you do with them? You basically have two choices. You move them somewhere else 
or you eat them, <laughs> you know, you cull them. And the choice for them, there was only really one choice that they needed to try and find somewhere else to put them. And they found this amazing place that hadn't had elephants for decades. The local villagers there, a lot of them had never even seen an elephant, even though historically there, there would have been elephants there. And it was, you know, amazing to see these incredible land mammals roaming this landscape once again. But it doesn't come without risk of loss of life of elephants, and we did lose elephants on the way. Uh, and it doesn't come without the risk of, of human loss as well, which nearly happened, and a huge amount of potential trauma just from the stress of moving these animals with all of the right intentions. And, uh, I mean, hopefully when eventually I finish the doc, this is what I'm going to show. But uh, it doesn't get shown very often. Yeah, and that kind of comes down to what I feel like is I, – I, you know, we talk about like should you show this or should you show that um, because sometimes maybe you don't want to show the reality. It depends on – I don't know because reality is still going to be filtered. The oh, trick yeah, it's is filtered what's by the, the point, fact it came through a right? lens. You know, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's going to be, it's tricky. I'm curious what you end up putting in your doc. Yeah, you're right, though. Like, what, what is the, there's, I think there's a difference between showing something just because, oh, well, isn't this shocking? And mm -hmm. showing something that is shocking because it moves a narrative forward and helps you understand. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I agree. It, the lifelong struggle, figuring out what to include. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, to my my list of my very, very long list of topics, which we haven't even really started on, on other than uh, talking about your book, just, just a little bit. Um, I just did an entire podcast on fire and the use of fire as a management tool in the landscape, which went out two weeks after this show is going out. So I'm not, I don't want to talk too long on this, but... You just put out some really great, very concise content on fire, which is obviously comes on the back of a very traumatic year, uh, particularly in North America, but around the world with big, you know, landscape scale wildfires. Uh, but the the angle that you were taking on it was that, well, hang on, there's, there is actually a reason for this. And fire can also be used in the landscape to to manage it. And it's a tool. What was it yeah. that prompted you to, to say, okay, uh, actually, I'm going to make a film about this. I'm going to invest some time to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Well, this is my fourth film on fire. And so the beginning of making the film on fire, I started looking at fire in the southeastern United States. And so fire in the southeast is very different because what happened in the U.S. that made it – and again, I'll keep this as brief as possible – but like around – the turn of the century, uh, they had some big fires and that made the government say, we're going to lock down, we're going to one, create the U S forest service, and then we're going to shut down every fire. But what happened in the Southeast is they didn't listen because they had been using fire for a long time. Um, and in the Southeast, you might just assume it's real wet, but it's not wet everywhere. You know, like it can get really hot and really dry, especially down in Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, and you get these big brushy shrubs um, of of land. Well, there because they needed it for hunting, it was all private. They kept they kept burning, and so they don't have the same problem that they have out west. In part because it's nice squares and you can just keep burning. 
Um, and this helps maintain really good habitat, especially for things like longleaf pine. Well, the Forest Service contacted me because of these early films and wanted to do something out west, like the understanding western fires. So I shot that film that you saw recently two years ago. So, so is, this, is this the one that was on the where they were managing it for shooting quail? Um, Am I thinking about the right no, film? Was that, that an older one? Uh, the older, so the one I the one I just put out, yeah, the one on Western fires is one that that I I don't know if you saw then, but it was uh, fire out west, and I was talking about all the fire management that they do in Montana and different places oh uh, no i must have i must have got my wires crossed because i did want i saw that go out on, on instagram but oh, i didn't right. have time to watch it and i thought oh I'll, I'll go revisit this later then i went on your youtube channel and i just clicked the first fire one which obviously wasn't that one it, it was yep. the, this one yeah. about uh using fire to manage these woods which is what you were just talking about um which is right. so, that, which so you saw how it was used in the east yeah but but it's it's different in the west um because now we have so much fuel that we know that we need to not burn or we know that putting out the burns is bad. We want to let it burn. But the problem is that's smoke. Um, and, and the big problem is the public won't accept prescribed burning very easily. And so the U.S. Forest Service wanted me to make a film to make it, one, get people to understand fire science a little bit better and hopefully get a little more on board with fighting these fires. And the weird thing, and this is my problem with social lately, is some of the big people who are against fires are people in the cities like Seattle, Portland, because they don't understand fire management all that well. And they, they're very against the smoke, you know, also like imagine a, a, like a hiker in Montana who lives in Bozeman or something. They, they just don't like the smoke, um, especially for their kids and stuff, which is totally understandable. But, you know, if you're going to manage these places for for healthy habitat, you're going to need a lot of burning and a lot more smoke. And so the narrative went out on social that, look, uh, all of this fire that's happening right now is because of climate change, Yeah. period. Yeah. And it's like, well, yes, but also because we have so much fuel. And so I wanted to put out the video then um, just to like a little bit show that it's more complicated and – and I didn't like that it was becoming political because it's not, <laughs> it shouldn't be. We have tools. We just need the people. We need people on board with more fire, not saying, look how bad it is because of climate change only. Like clearly climate change is a factor and it's making it hotter and drier, but that just means we need to burn more <laughs> to keep up with it. Yeah. it's uh, We can also create policies and stuff, but like, let's not get distracted from what we can actually do. It was kind of the point. And we talked to every state's fire manager out West in videos. So I was, I had like 18 interviews. It was ridiculous. I'm going to have to get on and actually watch the one I intended yeah, to watch. You <laughs> like that one. Yeah. Cue, on, cue in that, on that That's one. brilliant. I will, uh, is it, I, anyway, I assume that this is on your, fire you talked about it already, but yeah, we, yeah, we did like a whole <laughs> hour and a half on fire, uh, with, with a, with a former hotshot firefighter. It was a really cool conversation oh, cool. actually. Um, is, is that on your, that's on your channel on YouTube? Yeah. Yeah, which yeah, it's just on, just it's tell on, people on where that channel, is. Stone Age Man on YouTube. Stone Age Man, you can find it. And I think the title is um, 
of fire science. It's not just climate change or something like that. Cool. Okay. I'll um, <laughs> yeah. I'll stick all of your links to how to find you in the show yeah, notes. Good. In any case, J- just to backtrack a bit before we we stop talking about fire, because I, I want to ask you about the, the video that I did actually end up watching. Um, explain what was going on there, because that was an area that was managed for hunting, which was actually the first video that I saw you. Um, put out that was also linking this idea of uh, hunting being used as a conservation tool. Right. So I made a really short video uh, called um, Is Hunting Conservation or Can Hunting Be Conservation? Something like that. Um, That it was in this location. It's a longleaf pine reserve down uh, in southern Georgia. It's called Ichaway, the Jones Center. And it's a 30,000 acre plot of land that was essentially owned by Woodrow Wilson, which for, for people who don't know who he was, he was the guy who basically took Coca-Cola and made it famous. So the foundation has a lot of money to put into um, this plot of land, which was his own little hunting reserve. And so back in the, in the I, I think it was like 50s and 60s, he took this random farm field and turned it into a beautiful longleaf pine forest so that he could hunt quail. Because what, what happens is that if you need, if you want good quail, you need good habitat and habitat in this area means you burn a lot. So they burn all 30,000 acres on a rotation so that it's every other year. And, um, so we went down there and they have this really interesting way of hunting where you're on, it's all old school. They treat it all like when Woodrow Wilson started, <laughs> which, which actually was before the fifties and sixties, but he, it was horse drawn buggies or mule drawn buggies, I guess. And they have hunting dogs. So they have English setters, um, or English pointers and they zigzag in front of you and you're on horseback and the other dog, you know, the dogs are all in this. Very thing. It's, cool. It's, it's so, it's so cool. Yeah. And everybody kind of dresses up for it. Um, yeah. And it's, it's an, a unique hunting experience that you really can't economically recreate. Even today, the way they do it now is they have ATVs that, you know, instead of dogs that zigzag in front and they like, you're, you're on ATVs instead of horses, but they have this whole setup kind of as a perk to introduce people to the idea of conservation. That's kind of the way I saw it. Like they only have about 12, 10 or 12 hunting groups that go out a year on this 30,000 acre plot of land that has upwards of 200 employees, right? And they bring out people who are, you know, hot, like a little bit high up in uh, influencer types in the community. So governors, senators, um, I was brought in kind of as a science communicator person to kind of hook up with other people who were in the similar, in a similar space. Um, and so I, I, I turned around and I made a little video about it. They weren't, they didn't want me to, but I, or they didn't say I couldn't. Uh, and I, cause I just find the whole topic really interesting in that the people there are hunting in a way that is the perfect solution for conservation. They're creating a habitat, which is the most biodiverse habitat in the Southeast that doesn't exist outside of these little plots of land. And they're doing it for hunting. I mean, they have a, obviously they have a lot of money because it's the old Woodrow Wilson uh, account, you know, it's like investments paying it back, but um, it's just really neat. And so they show people like you can manage your land like this, check out how beautiful these places look. And I just thought it was really neat. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to tell that story. 
Yeah, it's um, and it, it is a, a complicated and uh, quite controversial subject. The idea of hunting being um, an instructional part and, and uh, an important part of conservation. I think it's an easier story to tell in North America because since like 1900, it has been really part of your wildlife recovery in really quite a major way. But it, increasingly, it comes under like pretty heavy criticism. Um, I'd say largely due to an emotional response to to what it is, rather than really understanding the underlying principles of it. Um, and it, I, I think it's interesting to speak to someone like you with a with a you know a very hardcore science background. You're a science communicator who is an is an ecologist and understands it from that point of view. And as somebody who's always trying to take the scientific uh, perspective on it, which is, you know, what is the truth of what we understand with the information we have at hand? You would be very quick to call out something that actually was just smoke and mirrors, and something that I do take exception to, because I, you know, I kind of, um, I kind of dance the dance the fence line between the the hunting community and the non-hunting community and I, quite deliberately so like I grew up hunting and fishing I do a lot less of it now than I than I used to only because of j- just time but I really really try my very best to try and understand why people hold the beliefs that they they hold and get to the bottom of you know what are, what are the foundations which which made them come to that conclusion and i think one of the things that I, I take exception to like within the hunting community is this overarching notion that it's a matter of fact that hunting is conservation because it absolutely can be and very very often is but also doesn't have to be <laughs> Yeah, you know, I so I I've spent a lot of time with hunter ed types, and I and I feel like I started into all of this with a with a background of hunting growing up, but then you know going into ecology, you're surrounded by all of these biologist types um, who who don't hunt and are kind of it's almost like shied shied from uh, you know you wouldn't tell anybody you were hunter you know if you're in a biology program and um yeah just. There is this weird divide in people who um, it's okay to fish. I was just about to say <laughs> this. A lot fine. of biologists I know I'm fish. <laughs> was un- not fine. Yeah, yeah. This, this is this weird thing. Um, yeah, actually, just as a side story, and I can get back to what I was talking about a second ago. Uh, I work with huntered.com, so I do a lot of their instructional videos. And I kind of got sucked into that. That wasn't my goal in my career, but because I was doing it, I, I met all these hunter ed types. And um, the company started doing scuba diving ed as well. And, and so he friended all of these people through Facebook and social that were in the scuba diving community. And they just roasted him for posting hunting pics. And he's like, wait a second, you guys go spear fishing and you post your spear fishing pics. Why is that any different? Like he didn't understand it, but like apparently holding up a dead, you know, bird or a, a pronghorn or something is, is is seen as uncool <laughs> so That's, which you know i don't really have comment on it. i wouldn't be doing that i wouldn't be posing that because i know a little bit better about the community i came from but you can yeah. do it in fishing you just can't do it in it's a really land. weird thing that especially when it comes to spear fishing um 
there's I know that there, there's like regulation on sizes, but there's far less understanding and far less control about our with our marine systems and our populations of of fish than there is on land. I mean, it's just because it's under the water. It's like quite obvious, and yeah, also well, we have uh, huge yeah, stresses. The larvae can float for thousands of miles, so that's tricky. Yeah, where on land you manage a plot and you can kind of keep your birds in it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a strange thing. So, uh, just uh, Hunter Ed. Uh, I mean, p- people who are listening to this who live in the U.S. will know what that is. But for the rest of the world, uh, yeah, w- what is okay. Hunter Ed and why is it imp- important? And what was your involvement there? Um, so, I don't know when they made it a requirement that you have to have Hunter education, but I think it's valuable for everyone to have a certification in some of these things before they pick up a gun and go out and hunt. It's for everyone's safety. And uh, I know as a kid, I took Hunter Ed. Everyone in the U.S. now under a certain age, because you can get grandfathered in, has to take Hunter Ed. Um, and so we, I, I made a whole series of videos that basically is the course. And you can now do it online, although you still have to go and get checked out with a physical firearm with a Hunter Ed instructor at the end. So most of the – if you don't take the NRA course, which – you know, nothing against NRA, but they're very political in their course. <laughs> you take our course. So okay. I surprisingly get a lot of people on my YouTube and are like, hey, are you the guy from Hunter Ed or sometimes Boater Ed? Because I did both. You have to do that for boating too. And so it's just kind of neat to see who's taking <laughs> Hunter Ed or whatnot. So it's a big market. So and, I, how- and I like to think that I'm influencing the direction of people in a good way because they're, the old videos were so – um well, old school, like they would, (laughs) there's a modern way of looking at our interaction with wildlife and more of having this mutual respect and seeing the science. And maybe I just see it my own way because I'm an ecologist, but like the trophy hunting idea of celebrating after you shoot an animal always bothered me. And so we don't have that in our course. And I think we're, I think that's a good thing. Mm, That's interesting. So how, maybe the question is, how did you, what made you go and do your masters in, in filmmaking? Because this is how do because I'm I'm trying to stitch the pieces together as how an ecologist makes a Hunter Ed series. Okay, well, um, we all need to eat. And so my <laughs> I know this feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I partnered up after film school um, when I was about twenty nine. 30. But why with, film school? I'm curious. This, this, this is one of the things oh, I'm curious about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, how do you go yeah, from ecologist to, to making films? Okay. So I decided I want to be a marine biologist because I watched Jacques Cousteau. And it was not until I – Yeah, everybody, right? It wasn't until I, I spent years studying the tail flicks of a small <laughs> sand flat fish that I realized I wasn't really following in his footsteps that he was more <laughs> Yeah, it's annoying to do actual science, I find. <laughs> yeah. But what I did is part of my research was using remote cameras on the sand flat. So I had all these spy cams hooked up across this bay in Hawaii. And I would just watch all these fish on a monitor. But because of that, I had all the filmmaking equipment. And so often for, to help other people with their presentations, I'd say, hey, I'll go out with you and I'll make a two or three minute short. And it was so fun to follow around these other researchers and see what they did that I kind of just got addicted to the process. And then at some point, actually, Patty gave me a grant to do a a video about the biodiversity of Mexico, which was an hour-long documentary. Wow, that's a big big undertaking. Yeah, it was was a big undertaking. 
And then I just loved the process. And that got me into grad school in Montana doing science filmmaking. And then I kind of, it, the, I, I feel like a program like that often just leapfrogs you four or five years of what you could do normally. Yeah. So right away after that, I started making films for biology textbooks. And in doing so, I met up with a guy who who was the dad of my friend in filmmaking school, but also made films, but he made hunting films. He was an ex-geologist. It's not like he was a hunter, hunter, hunting film guy, but he had a connection with this group who wanted hunting films. So he kind of like pitched us. And so the as first a team. bit, yeah, as a, as a company, Untamed Science, to do these films. And I was the on-camera host of it because I, I did a lot of on-camera stuff. And so that kind of just snowballed into all of the other films. We did Hunter Ed, Snowmobile Ed, Boater Ed, uh, ATV Ed, Archery Ed. I have a knot, a course on knots, <laughs> <laughs> but it's the most fun thing because you get to go out with the experts and then they teach you like legitimately the best way to do stuff. Like the snowmobile course there, we had these people who trained the military on how to like turn the snowmobile and you slide off and pull your gun at the same time and get behind it as you're like sliding and you start. <laughs> so we did all that. It's cool. That's fun. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny because. Uh, that is a lot of the reason why I started, why I picked up a, a camera and started filming things was because I, I saw it as a passport and a gateway to learn more from people who knew a lot more about a subject than me. In fact, that, that, I mean, that is also one of the reasons I started the podcast, other than wanting to be able to present this information in a consumable way for, for everybody, you know, for free, easily accessible and, and collate amazing knowledge from people around the world in one place the the this kind of selfish aspect of that is i also wanted to like interact with these people and learn from them and filming photography podcasting has all been a way to do that i don't think i mean even though i'm busy doing my masters right now i don't think i would ever want to actually go and practice the science, but I do want the knowledge and I do want to be able to have these discussions and communicate it in a way. I think that's probably what I will continue to do, but just hopefully well, understand I, more about you're it. You're going the right path for sure, because there are so many filmmakers who have zero degree in filmmaking and they miss something. And I don't know exactly what it is. I think they, they're not grounded enough in the science. There's something to be able to speak the language of a scientist, they come at, you know, you can almost see the difference. It's like the mind of an artist and the mind of a scientist are going to have different perspectives on a film. But blending those two yeah. is, is interesting to me. Yeah, you need both. You need both. But if you don't have the scientific background, but you're making a science film, it comes off as like more of an activist type film. And I, that totally is the danger. Yep, that is a real danger. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there. In fact, I've seen a few quite big hitting, uh, like a lot of money being spent on them. Documentaries come out on Netflix recently, which which some of them I never even finished got got to the end of them. It's like this feels like propaganda to me. Yeah, well, yeah, and so this this point is what I feel is the difference between LA filmmakers and the British filmmakers. Because, and, and this is a natural history filmmaking kind of thing, almost every crew I ever work with from Great Britain, they, their whole crew has a background in biology, some sort of undergrad or something, especially the producers. Whereas as you go to LA, 
they they may never have taken a biology class in college, but they know how to make reality shows. And so they have to, <laughs> But and they their background is in fiction writing, so they have in their head what the story should be, and they're trying to make it that kind of in a Hollywood type way. This is my feeling, and and no offense by the way to people in LA who do have that background and produce films, but there's not as many. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And but I think you're yeah you probably yeah you're probably pointing something out there that is that is quite true, and it is it is important when when you're telling factual. When you're putting out um, factual information and you're creating documents that are are based on fact and science, that they are indeed that, and that you're not missing stuff out. I mean, this is this is a perfect loop back to kind of how we started the show was how you you edit and um, portray these stories, even with all the information at hand, can make a big difference to the the actual takeaway that uh, you know somebody will will glean from this documentary that's been made. I mean, this is probably a, a perfect walk into the work that you were doing with, um, I was going to say, um, zo- <laughs> I was going to say zombie wolves in Chino- Chernobyl, but uh, no, radioactive wolves in Chernobyl, yeah. which was a couple of yeah. years ago. How did, uh, was that during that period of time where you were doing a lot of, um, where you were like the guy to go to? That was, yeah, well, I won an award at the Big Science Film Making Festival that, um, that September. Oh, this cool. Was in what for? Uh, for basically my podcast or the, the video YouTube stuff that I was doing. Oh, amazing. And it was a special jury award that everybody awarded at the very end. So it wasn't like best of festival. It was a big one. I came down and I wasn't expecting it. So I hadn't written anything for it. And I was like, well, I guess because none of the rest of you have YouTube channels, I should accept this. Thank you. Uh, cause I don't fit in any of your categories. This is great. <laughs> I'm sure I sounded like a complete D dong, but the next day they called me up. Um, and are like, we want you to, we want you to do this show in Chernobyl. We need a host like in two weeks and believe it or not, it was Nick Baker who declined it. <laughs> and oh, I love Nick Baker. Who, who yeah. I just had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. He probably doesn't know that I was like, I, I've been in contact with him before, but he I still speak know. to him. Um, uh, actually it's, which is, which is really cool. <laughs> Chernobyl turned down. Or it, it, it was Rob and he, no uh, he did it well. We did a good job with it. <laughs> it's such a small world. I, I want you to get back to this story, but it's such a small world yep. because I, so we did the podcast. I didn't know Nick. His, uh, a PR company reached out to me because of some, the stuff he was doing on the Isle of Wight. And so I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'd love the opportunity to interview Nick Baker, who like I grew right. up watching on TV yeah. and is amazing. And so we, we spoke and like we got on and we, we had conversation after we finished recording as well. And I mentioned it to another friend of mine who's based down in Bristol, who's actually helping me with the Congo doc. And he's an ex-producer for the BBC in the, like the natural history unit. And I was like, oh, I just interviewed Nick Baker. And I was like, oh, no way. I, I produced a whole bunch of stuff with him back in the day. I was like, no way. And then he sent me a video clip of him and Nick Baker and a couple of other camera people in British Columbia. And he's busy like presenting whatever it was. He was talking about salmon runs or something. And this bear just walks up behind him. And everyone just stops what they're doing. But Nick doesn't meet, miss a beat he just like carries on presenting, starts talking about the bear behind him because he'd obviously like, I think everyone was reading the situation and it was clear 
Uh, and if you look at if you look at the bear and you know a little bit about like bears and wildlife, you can see that the bear was just passing through, and he'd obviously worked, didn't miss a beat, just kept on narrating, telling the story. Bear passed and walked on. Absolutely brilliant, but really small world. <laughs> Yeah, it is. I I, um, I had big shoes to fill because that was who the person was supposed to be. No, I'm not great on camera as somebody who can just do long-winded diatribes, and he is. So I respect him for that. But yeah, I ended, uh, ended up going to uh, Chernobyl two weeks after that. That's such a cool trip. And, oh, such a cool thing to be yeah. asked to do. So yeah, t- tell me about the um, what that trip was for and about. Like, what was the what was the story that you were going to capture? So I was brought in as a biologist and I co-hosted it with this um, lady, Marianne Ojada, who's an anthropologist, um, also does a lot of stuff in the UK if, you, if you're not connected with her. But she um, she kind of was telling the story of the people in Chernobyl afterwards, but we the whole show was called Life After Chernobyl. So we wanted to see what was happening 30 years after this, the worst nuclear disaster in the history of mankind, basically. And what I was surprised by was how much life there was. And I had seen some stuff before, but it doesn't really compare to when you actually pull in. You know, it's, there, there's craziness at the gates. Like you feel like you're in Soviet Russia again. Like it's just military and wow. like old school equipment that they're using, you know, like stuff from the 80s they're using to scan you with. It's weird. And then you get in and it feels like you're in a national park. Because they've let everything just decay and fall apart. And because of that, everything has grown up around it. So it's like you're you're going through a forest and you look look through the forest and see like buildings. And it's like, oh, that was a little little outpost and a little town. It's like the world reclaiming theory. where humans once were. Yeah, the best example of it was we went to this place that was an old football field. And so you, you kind of pull up. This is in Pripyat, which is the town center that fed the workers to Chernobyl power plant. And, and this is the, this is a famous thing. So a lot of people who are familiar will, will remember it, but um, the inside of the, the football field there is a forest. So with your camera, if you can do it, you, you film the forest and then you pan to the stands and it's just such a great reveal of like, wow, this is what happened in 30 years. It wasn't that long Amazing. Ago. Just nature yeah, taking so, a bath. So my goal yeah. was to, to look at the wolves because there were reports of these radioactive wolves attacking people. That was the that was the kind of the hook to try to get people into the documentary. And I'm okay with hooks. The problem was we knew going in that it was um it was rabies. Or yeah, rabies from a particular wolf, which is quite common uh in Europe especially with with wolves and wolves hit the rabid phase at a really at a at a time when other animals might just stumble around wolves get really aggressive okay. and actually will will attack people and so that's what happened with this wolf but it's like how do you tell the story knowing that the the payoff at the end is going to be oh it was actually just rabies and so we did all the stuff I was totally fine with it my problem with it was at the very end when I saw the doc it didn't make the film that it was rabies it just got cut that's crazy so that kind of goes back to my dilemma what do you add and what do you not and I, yeah. I just felt really adamant that you got to add that <laughs> you can't so cut what that. so what, what was because I haven't seen the film I just know that you did it so what was the what was the takeaway though so you, you went there the film is about look at these radioactive wolves they're really aggressive yes they are. Mm-hmm. With no explanation as to why? Well, you know, 
in the defense of everybody that made it, we shot it and it didn't get distributed for 18 months. Oh, right. And what we were supposed to do was go to Belarus, which was just, you know, 10 miles north of there over the border and trap a bunch of wolves and then get pieces of their fur and like figure out how much, how radioactive they were. So that was the big payoff at the end. And then we were going to talk about the radioactive wolves. Well, uh, the, (laughs) such a weird story, but this is how it all goes. The cameraman lost his passport. And so we couldn't make the crossing into Belarus. So the whole thing got cut short and they didn't really have the footage to tell the wolf story. So the wolf story did start it and was like through the middle, but they used other things to tell the meat of the story of Chernobyl. And so we just glossed over a little bit and we're like, well, you know, things are improving and it's, it's, if man gives it a chance, things will recover. But we just didn't even hit the wolf at the end. We didn't say like, oh, and by the way, we found out the wolf was not, you know, it would have been weird, I think. So somebody in the process who wasn't on location made that decision, which was probably fine. But I spent so long with the wolf researcher convincing her that we're not going to vilify these wolves and we'll tell the true story that I felt bad. And this is why I like doing YouTube because it was nobody's fault. Like I can't. I can't call up anybody individually because they were all, they weren't even part of the production anymore. So, and the people whose fault it was for making that cut, like we're in some city and, you know, some office in New York or something, I bet. I don't know. But, so, I mean, yeah, it's what, a problem. Chernobyl yeah. as a, because mm. the, the recent um, David Attenborough documentary, his sort of memoir, which is brilliant, uh, it actually opens in Chernobyl. And he's walking around like an, an abandoned building. And obviously they, they did that because for exactly the reason that you've just um, been describing, which is a, it's an example of a place where humans vacated for obvious reasons because the nuclear power station blew up. And it, we've had now a period of decades where there has been no human intervention. And, and, and it's an amazing case study of what happens when we are removed from a landscape. Uh, that experience must have been kind of spooky, but also incredible to see the sort of re- reclamation of what was oh, once a, a very yeah, you know busy I mean, bustle. Because how many people were in that? It was hundreds of thousands of people who used to live there. Um, yeah, I think I think the number. Well, there were a hundred thousand liquidators brought in to clean it up, and I want to say the number of people was like one hundred and fifty thousand in Pripyat originally, but then they brought in a ton of other people. So they estimate it was close to a million people affected by the blast and all of the contamination afterwards. But um, what what's a, what kind of gets misled is that um, as much of a disaster as it was, it things are turning out to be okay, given the fact that we like cleaned it up and are letting it grow back again. So it's a great testament to how things can recover if we give them a chance. You know, it really is. You can't not see that. You look everywhere and you feel like you have to not have a full sense of security, though. Like you can definitely get in trouble standing in the wrong spot too long. So everybody wears Geiger counters and stuff. But the animals are better off even with the deleterious or even with the terrible effects of radiation than they are with humans in it hunting. were you able and, and, to so like see the effects of, of radiation on the animals that you did come across? 
Um, we trapped some birds. Yeah. So in particular, there's a lot of birds that experience much higher rates of tumors. So some of their feet have like a lot of little tumors on. I mean, a lot of birds' feet do, but um, when you look at the actual graph of the birds, it's a, it's a quite a, an apparent rate that if standing on the ground is not good for them. And so they get tumors on their feet. But, you know, it's, it's, it's like saying, I, I think that, I think the rate of, um, deleterious mutations is up to like 3% of the population. I, I want to say it's in that range and, and, abo- you know, aborted fetuses and stuff like that. Whereas but that's quite small. It's, it's quite small, but yeah. if you think about it in, in the form of humans, like 3% of babies dying. Oh, that, I mean, terrible. it would be huge right. in humans. So, it's just that right. it when, when you look at it from the animals, yeah. like it's, it's, it's a problem, but it's not as bad as if humans were there really messing with their environment. Yeah, got and so they, they work through it. And the cool thing, and this is a great take home, they've adapted. So if you, in particular, if you look at the birds, um, I forget the number, is it four or five of the species are actually doing better inside of the zone because they came up with a way of um, eliminating the, the cancer-causing agents. So they're creating more antioxidants and stuff. So they're actually doing better inside of the zone than they are outside. Interesting. And th- so this is like a perfect case, stu- case study of adaptive evolution. Yeah, and you would never be able to study that in any situation other than looking at the animals in Chernobyl. <laughs> like you can't ethically do that. No. And that's why I found talking to the scientists there so fascinating is they're they're in a unique experiment that you can't do anywhere else. <laughs> that's fascinating. So cool. Yeah, I need to yeah. read more about it. I only recently watched the the series Chernobyl, which was insanely right. good. Not that it covers yeah, it, anything to do with what we've been talking about because this is just Well, the, it does cover it's it's hard to understand what happened and why it happened and they did a good, pretty good job doing that. The only problem I had is I had researched it so well that I was like, "Wait a second, they completely made up that whole person." And wait, that didn't happen. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Like things like the helicopter crash over the like that didn't happen. <laughs> it's like that's a pretty big detail to oh, me. Oh, I about. wouldn't have known that. But I cuz I, other I, that, yeah, there was a lot of things they made, like complete characters they just made up. But I, I think in terms of the science and what happened and the chain of events, I think it, from my yeah, understanding, it was, was pretty close yeah. to what happened. Yes, yes, I would agree. Yeah, we we actually stayed with some people in Chernobyl who worked at the power plant. And they told us, they're like, you know, we're not supposed to say this, but it wasn't an accident. I was like, what? And they're like, yeah. And they, they kind of went into this conspiracy theory, but it helped, seemed to hold a little bit of weight. And it kind of, they kind of did talk about that in this thing, that it was like not an accident. It was somebody trying to trying to do something for their own gain and then cover it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, that, come, that comes across in the series. But um, going from, from wolves to wolves and the red wolf, I bring this up because I, as I was scanning down your, your list of YouTube videos, I came to like, shit, red wolf. I've just been reading about the red wolf. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, in America, probably people know about the red wolf. But in the rest of the world, there'll be loads of people who've never heard of the red wolf, yeah. uh, which takes more people in America even know. Oh, you don't it. think so? Okay, well, I, I take it back then. Um, maybe it was just my perception because North it is. North Carolina, probably. <laughs> so, 
I, I want to dig into this with you a little bit. I mean, tell me about the the film that you made before I ask my my more probing questions about the Red Wolf and some recent stuff that I was reading okay. about it. So just like yeah. lay the landscape for the Red Wolf and uh, like its its history. So the Red Wolf is. Uh, a unique species of wolf. Uh, so the gray wolf is one, um, and there's about five other species worldwide that um, got d- basically exterminated through hunting and bounties on these wolves. And it it lived in all of Eastern North America. So back when the pilgrims came, first thing, there were no gray wolves. It was red wolves. And the red wolves are a smaller species of wolf that primarily hunts the white-tailed deer that's out here. They're beautiful. Um, And essentially in doing so excluded coyotes from the East because they also eat coyotes. They'll, they'll, they'll attack coyotes. So as we, throughout the 19th century, well, around like 1920, you know, all of these got killed. And then by 1960, I want to somewhere in the 1960s, I got to rewatch my film. This is how it works. (laughs) But that's okay. I get most of the details. That's okay. People can go Um, watch the film. They can go watch the film. Uh, There were only about 20 of these left somewhere in southeastern Texas. And so people came in, grabbed these wolves, and basically brought them into captivity. And then there was nowhere to put a group of wolves in North America, except for they found a small plot of land in eastern North Carolina, which is not where they were from. They were from Texas, eastern Texas. And they put them there and tried to reintroduce the red wolf. So I'm from North Carolina. These are North Carolina now wolves. And I wanted to see what was happening with these with these wolves. And we had teamed up with somebody who was a camera trapper and had put out camera traps. And our goal with the film was then to just collect the camera traps and see if we could find evidence of wolves. Because the real problem right now is two things. Um, well, the population is going down and and they're, it's quite political. So a lot of people are anti-wolf for whatever reason. Um, and so the we ha- you have to convince people that they're worth saving so that there's some political incentive to want to put money into them. And it was it's fascinating because the problems are both that coyotes are coming in and, and interbreeding. And again, coyotes weren't in anywhere in the eastern U.S. And then you have people now shooting these wolves because they're starting to spread out a little bit. Is so that illegal though? Is that- it's, it's illegal to shoot the wolves, but it's not illegal to shoot coyotes. Yeah, and the problem okay. with the red wolf <laughs> is that it really looks like a coyote. I can see that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the coyotes are getting bigger because they moved east and are starting to fill the niche. But, and they do, they're, they're really hard to tell. And the crossbreeding, like I, you have to get an expert to look at these things and figure out is it a coyote or is it a wolf? Mm, yeah. We have the same problem with, uh, Scottish wildcats because they're just they're so crossbred with feral domestic cats. Oh, there is an argument right. that actually, are yeah. there any pure wildcats left? Maybe not. And th- mm-hmm. this kind of goes to what mm-hmm. I, what, which which is why I wanted you to lay the groundwork for the the red right. wolf. I mean, it's crazy that there was only twenty left, and it does um, raise some questions about genetic bottlenecks. But I read right. a paper recently that said, well, actually, the red wolf's a hybrid anyway. And always has been, and was never a distinct species. It 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 exists because it's a hybrid between a wolf and a coyote. 
Historically. Um, but I don't know. I, yeah. I, mean, I, I need to dig into that more, but it's something I read very recently, which is why I was yeah, intrigued by your video. Yeah, so um, the guy who's doing the camera trapping with me, Roland, he's kind of an expert on uh, coyotes and hence wolves. And he said that's, that is kind of the, the issue that's happening right now. Well, this goes back to this, what do you say as a biologist? Like if you're a wolf biologist, you are not going to get on record saying that it's a hybrid. No. Because, well, then, it, because hybrid, then it won't get protection. This is the problem, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And, well, and so here's the other thing, um, the other dilemma. If Even if red wolves were their own unique species, which I actually think they are, they're their own species, are the, are the wolves we have now unique enough? And it seems to me that that's the dilemma. Like 95% of, a, of their DNA is coyote DNA right now. So if you were to go back and try to recreate the red wolf, it seems – and it, well, okay. Because if you're going to reintroduce them and try to make them fill a niche, how do you do that? Um, they reintroduce them in the mountains where there's a little more space in the Great Smoky Mountains. And they didn't do well. They all died because they couldn't eat the deer. And so it seems to me like making them bigger through some genetic breeding of wolf, gray wolf DNA might actually help with that problem because gray wolves can travel a little bit further and eat bigger game. Um, but do you, you know, right now it, it's not seen as very popular of an idea to introduce wolf, uh, gray wolf DNA into it to make them bigger. They, they want to keep with the same 20 individuals and not go outside of that. But yeah, they're mostly now coyote DNA. It's weird. Yeah. And that's what, but that, that gives fuel to the other side who wants to delist them. So I don't know. Yeah. Because under it's the, really under really the ESA, it's, uh, hybrids are not recognized, are they? From my understanding. Yeah, I don't know all the politics of what legally there is this and that, but yeah. It's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, not just for, for red wolves, but um, for other species around the world that have declined to very small populations that with the way that we understand genetics now, we can trace these lineage, lineages back and work out what the closest like the the sister clade or whatever is, so that we could, a little bit like they did with the Florida panther, where you can introduce another very close subspecies to to bolster the the um, the genetics of a species which otherwise would die out because there just isn't the genetic information left in them to breed as their own population. And the question is that is this really? Well, I mean, there's a, quite a few questions. Yeah, should we be doing this? Uh, is it really worth the effort and time if there's something that is incredibly closely related that can fill the same um, niche in the ecosystem when we have so few resources and so many things we need to tackle in the conservation world? Yeah, well, in this case, I definitely want to go on the record saying we need to save the red wolf. Red wolf. That's fine. You <laughs> got that stamp. It, well, <laughs> it is. It definitely is uh, one of those things that's often I – mean, there is federal money, but a lot of this is funding – funded by the zoos and and aquariums that are kind of collectively breeding these things. It's not a huge amount of money that's going into it, you know? And uh, for the defense of uh, is it better on the ecosystem, red wolves are bigger than coyotes. But on a camera trap photo, 
it's hard to tell the difference. They also behave differently. They're more, they behave more like uh, gray wolves. So they, they work in packs more than coyotes, which are more lone, lone animals. And so if you were to introduce red wolves, they would exclude the coyotes from their range again. And coyotes are a real problem for people. They're a little more curious. Red wolves stay away from people. So it would be better to have red wolves back on the system. <laughs> but people in their heads are very anti-wolf for some reason. And it's mostly, I think, because of European myths. Do you think if it was called something different and it was just called like the red coyote, <laughs> that it wouldn't have half the problems? Uh, well, coyotes, people hate coyotes. Oh, so well, maybe not that. I don't know. Like, like the red, the, the red, the red wild dog. Red Jamagajir, yeah, it yeah. would. <laughs> yeah, it's weird how how perceptions and you're you're right. I mean, some of it goes back to you know fairly primitive man, and you know yeah. what what's been dragged through time, the, the these clashes between certain species and wolves is certainly one. Even though well, they did and- give us dogs, which we all love. <laughs> right, and the, oops, hold on. Sorry about that. Um, And actually, the wolf thing is something I explored with the book, which I find really fascinating because I always had the idea that wolves were definitely a problem, maybe more back in the day. And now not a problem, but, you know, let's look into the aggressiveness of it. When I started to explore it and talk to the experts, I stumbled across an idea that I had never thought of before. And that was that our idea of wolves and wolf aggression in culture comes from Europe. And that North American wolves are very different behaviorally than European wolves. And this goes back to their relationship with man, basically. They had a long time where man was not in North America. Yeah. And they don't have a natural response to man. And so if you look at Native American culture, they're not afraid of wolves. That's not a thing. And there's almost no attacks ever. There are a few, but not many. Uh, from North American wolves and there's wolves all over Yellowstone and all through Canada. And it's, it's such a rare thing to find out attack. But if you go back to the literature, um, uh, with wolves in, uh, Europe, like there's a, there is a huge history of wolves attacking people. Like in France, I did, I did this research in the book from 1200 to 1920, which is when they have the best data. Like they actually somehow in, I don't know, through monks or something, have this data. There were 7,600 fatal wolf attacks. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah which is a lot. And so the, the idea is that the wolves in Europe are more aggressive. And it makes sense in that... Just as part of their evolution. Part of their evolution with yeah. humans, yeah. That they, they're coming into conflict. We're in North America, like, they don't know what's going on. Same, same reason things like the mastodon went extinct, people... Are real, maybe that's an easy concept to understand, but yeah, the wolves here weren't a problem. So <laughs> it's it's interesting I because did not I did, expect that to be the same because I knew wolves were you know quite circum uh, circumglobal in their distribution, but a little bit different. There's a re- I mean there there is a there is a very good reason that we that they don't exist in in the UK anymore um, because we hunted them out because they were very right. inconvenient for us. I mean, we sure. haven't seen wolves here since the, uh, I'm going to get the date wrong, but it's the 1740s or 60s or something. Yeah, probably. Um, when the last wolf was killed. Are they Ireland. trying to reintroduce them? Um, it, it is a discussion uh, that comes up. It's a very polar discussion. 
uh, with a lot of emotions involved as to whether we should have, because we don't have any large predators in the landscape. So it's like wolves are probably second to lynx, introducing introducing lynx back in the landscape, but both court a lot of controversy because you know we we live in a very urbanized country. We have you know close to seventy million people in a fairly small place. I mean, there's only five million in Scotland, but a lot of agriculture, and they're perceiving what all of the problems you know will be. But we also live in a very fragmented country in terms of um, the the areas that could be occupied by such animals. And in in my mind. I would absolutely bloody love to see wolves again. I'd love to see lynx again. But I think before we get there, we need to fix our, our ecosystem and our landscape so that it can has the best chance of supporting these animals without having uh, like continued negative conflicts all the time. Um, yeah, you can't really, right. you know, you need to have the landscape and the terrain and the, the ecosystems in place to support these animals first. Yeah, that would be a problem. Maybe maybe throw it on Isle of Man or something. Uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of people on the island. They, may, they might not like that either. <laughs> um, I, there's something I wanted to ask you about just when you were mentioning zoos and the funding that comes from zoos. Is I, I have a f- bit of a funny relationship with zoos in that I will pretty much point blank refuse to go to them because I don't – I really – I spend so much time out – in the middle of nowhere, enjoying as natural a relationship as you can with, uh, like, between humans and wildlife, that it really pains me to see uh, wildlife in as good as a zoo can be. And there are some amazing zoos out there. There's also some really terrible ones. It really pains me to see these animals in these constricted spaces. But I am equally aware of the funding that is afforded for conservation efforts by the fact that people go through the doors of zoos and the breeding programs that exist. What has your experience been of it? It sounds like, you know, you've, you've clearly had some, some interactions through the work that you've done. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like I spend a lot of my time actually trying to convince people of the benefit of zoos and aquariums. And I think maybe that's just from where I came from. Everybody has a negative view of, of zoos and aquariums, but they do a lot of good. You know, I, I will admit when I was first starting out, it wasn't just Jacques Cousteau. I definitely went to SeaWorld and loved the marine science from SeaWorld. And so it was a big inspiration for me growing up. And I think that that's really, it's really a useful outreach thing for people who are landlocked and can't see these wild places to fall in love with wildlife. Um, the other aspect is that they do bring in a lot of money, um, or can and zoos that are done right. I feel like should have an outreach component and right. So it's like, if you think about it, big picture, it's like, well, how would you do a zoo? Right? Well, one, you'd want to teach people about all the good, these animals or all, all of the ecosystems and all the animals and get them to fall in love with things. And then you'd want to give back. Right? So a lot of these zoos, especially the ones that are certified, AZA, that's really important, um, have scientific research that goes out back into the field. So the North Carolina Zoo, where I was working with in particular, does a lot um, in uh, in Africa, particularly. That's where a lot of their displays are from for conservation things. I did a, a, a vulture thing where they're trying to protect African vultures because of all the poisonings that are happening oh, in yeah. Africa. Um, I worked with a gorilla person who's trying to work with, 
you know, the gorillas back there. Like they do a lot of really good stuff that wouldn't ever happen without the zoo. Um, and I think, you know, that pe- people see, should be able to see that nuance, hopefully, and not be just anti-zoo. But I think we, are, we should always be pushing the needle forward with zoos and trying to make them better and better. Of course, they can't get better without pe- public support. But, you know, you, the contrast to that is everybody's – well, a lot of people saw the li- – uh, what was the lion? Tig- Tiger King. Uh, uh, I mean, that would yeah, be the Tiger King. of a terrible zoo that, like, the – You'd think, well, well, isn't there a way to certify if a zoo's good or not? Because you wouldn't want to support that zoo. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> there is. It's, it's called AZA. It's a certification. Obviously, that zoo doesn't have it. And I've been to – there's a zoo like that north of Charlotte that uh, my son, who's five uh, – well, was five then, his best friend, uh, this little, little African-American girl, um, wanted – she loves tigers – so they all went up to this tiger reserve. So it was, it was like this cool mix of kids going up there to see tigers and they were feeding tigers through a cage. It was like, I, I felt like I was going to throw up, like a whole thing made me nauseated, but like, who am I to go up to the, these, you know, very urban families in Charlotte and be like, guys, you're doing it wrong. This is not how, you know, I'm not, so I never didn't, it didn't say anything, but it just felt wrong. And I, I don't know how to find the balance. Other than teach people, you know, good zoos have a certification, support them, don't support the other ones. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in my mind, um, I think what the, those elements are crucially important and that with as zoos continue to exist, they definitely have to give back, not just in terms of outreach and uh, and as an educational element and, and as a gateway to... Uh, feed the intrigue of of people to care about wildlife and care about the environment, but also give back into um, conserving the the wild counterparts to those animals which they have in the zoo. And I think if you don't have that, I have I have a problem with it because you know otherwise why does why does it exist? Right. What's the point? Is it just to like make it so, like make money and let itself exist. And that's the same view I have with hunting. It's a, you know, if hunting is around just to let people hunt, like you see a lot of these reserves that breed birds and then they put them in the grass and they're like, okay, now shoot them. It's like, okay, well, I guess, but are you, are we doing anything for the habitat? Like, (laughs) yeah, it's an interesting one. And I've debated this uh, quite a lot recently as I've been thinking about our own systems here in the UK because we release, and I mean, it's being brought up uh, and I need to kind of catch up with the stuff that's been in the news and what the responses from the industry have been. But we historically, like since the Victorian era, have released vast numbers of non-native birds, primarily uh, red-legged partridges from Europe and um, uh, pheasants, which are Asian. And, you know, they get put down and they get hunted or, I mean, it's, um, I actually, I, I, I don't even, it's some, it's not even really hunting, <laughs> but they get shot in these, you know, organized shoot days where they're, you know, they're driven and, and people shoot them and that food goes into the food chain. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a food element there. And it's certainly, I'd rather be, if I had to choose between being a pheasant, that's going to be shot on a, on a shoot day and a chicken, uh, I, I want, I'm going to be the pheasant. Because that sure. is a much better, more yeah. ethical life than than a chicken. Um, however, it does raise the questions like, well, what are you actually doing it for? Now, there is a lot of research, 
uh, that has been done by the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust to suggest, and, and this goes to kind of your question on it, which is, is there a positive outcome? And they are suggesting that the positive outcome in situations where it is done right, where there is where the densities of birds that are put down are not too high, that the the act of planting game crops and feeding and managing uh, predators uh, at a certain level benefits a lot of other species and a lot a lot of species which are are struggling like which are red listed like curlew is is the, the one example that comes up quite a lot and so yeah we have something here which is uh, not uh, not natural in that it's a non-native being released. But is the net game for net gain for the the native wildlife positive? And in many instances, it is. So can we justify it in that case? And this is a you know to some extent it's a bit it's a moral debate that we're having as well. Yeah, well, and so I think the best example of a ridiculous justification of this was when I was in Hawaii. My one of my good friends was works with the uh, DNR. He was. Uh, that's the Department of Natural Resources. That's where all the hunting and regulation goes through. But his particular branch he was in charge of was in, uh, endangered species. He was particularly working on Kauai, which is like um, huge, steep cliffs. It's amazing. Most eroded cliffs, like 3,000 foot cliffs into the ocean. So just to put it in perspective, lots and lots of rare animals found only on that island, only on those cliffs. The biggest danger to them is often pigs and sheep okay yeah or or goats because the goats just chew up all these invasive species and then the pigs through uh, the pig wallows and all the rooting they do both the plants are destroyed and they create places for mosquitoes to carry diseases for all the birds so anyways arguably yeah arguably if you just got rid of pigs and goats things would recover pigs and goats were only introduced within the last 150 years like captain cook found the islands in 1850, right? Or 18-something, yeah, 1850. So, you know, you could make the argument, not native, we should get rid of them. Well, the argument right now is that <laughs> the DNR is run mostly by locals, like uh, indigenous Hawaiian uh, people. And they say, we've always hunted here, pigs, so we want to keep it as a, a native right, like a, you know, like they're using the argument of we want to keep it for cultural reasons yeah <laughs> yeah like, indigenous rights yeah well okay i guess how far do we go back with these yeah i mean you have done it for a hundred and so many years but yeah it's a challenge i, I mean the an example which i won't dig into in fact it's going to be out in the next volume of uh, modern huntsman volume six in a couple of weeks time is like whale hunting by indigenous populations which is I mean, I covered a whale hunting story in the last issue. This one's very different. This was the whale hunting story I covered was in the Pharaohs. And it's very unpalatable for most people, the idea of hunting whales. And there are some populations of whales that are, you know, have, have never recovered from the massive boom in the whale hunting industry and for various other reasons now are still declining. But there are equally populations um which are doing fine and it is possible to take a harvestable surplus off it most people would feel very uncomfortable about the idea of killing a whale but there are populations of people in parts of the planet who have been doing this for thousands of years and 
just because it's uncomfortable for me sitting here in Scotland, does that mean that they shouldn't be able to do it here if they're not negatively affecting the, the population globally? Yeah, management, right? That's the it's whole about solution. management and, and some form. I, I I'm trying not to use the word balance because I there is no balance. There's only dynamic change, as far as I'm concerned. As I, I was going to say, and the balance, but I'm trying to stop myself from saying that as much as I used to. Uh, I've we have been we've been talking for a long time already. Now there's just uh, let me see here. There's two things I want to touch on because I think it's really important before I let you go. Um, again, because you you covered this so brilliantly and concisely, uh, which was a story, I'm not sure how many people really paid attention to it here in the UK, but a lot of people in the US were up in arms about it, was the, these genetically modified mosquitoes being released and why this was a problem. And it, it, it's the same sort of outrage that a lot of people have to this this concept of genetically modified crops without really an understanding of what we mean by that. So what was the story there and, and why were they doing it in Florida? Yeah, so um, basically they're, they're manipulating the genetics of mosquitoes so that they don't reproduce. That's, that's kind of the essence of it. There is uh, one particular species of mosquitoes uh, called Aedes aegypti, which is responsible for dengue, Zika, um, chikungunya in particular. That's the one they were treating. They've, they can genetically modify all of them, like m the malaria type mosquitoes, the ones that carry all the different ones. So, so the one that they were doing carry is, has a problem with these particular ones. Now those diseases are quite bad. Like we all remember the Zika scare. And so the idea is, um, how do you control the, the mosquitoes during an outbreak? Cause mosquitoes are really only the vector for the actual disease right? But it, they'll bite an infected human. They'll trans, they'll then transfer it in another bite to another infected human. So either you control the human who has the disease or you control the mosquitoes. And in North America, it's a little easier to control the humans. They just sit them in a, inside with screens and you say, don't go outside. Um, in a third world countries or developing countries, that's a little harder to do. So it seems useful if you're going to control these terrible diseases to try to hit the mosquito problem. Well, um, insecticides aren't always the solution. And you can imagine from a biodiversity perspective, you don't want to just take airplanes and spray insecticide because it kills kills everything. You can kind of hit mosquitoes in particular, but not every, you know, you're hitting everything. But you can actually go in and manipulate the genetics um, and do so in a way that it doesn't escape. And that's what they're doing with this one. So they're manipulating only male mosquitoes. The males carry a gene that makes it so that um, the larvae don't develop into mosquitoes. But what happens is, so they'll release the males. The males will meet, mate with females in the field. They'll produce offspring then that, um, uh, that, that don't survive very well. The females don't, but then the males, this, this is where the, it's complicated with the genetics. I'll just explain that they found a way that it's, it's not just a one hit that it'll pass through the generation for like about 10 generations. Cause about half the offspring will take that gene. Okay. So it is germline yeah, so as in it's hereditary. It'll be passed down, but there's, a, but there's then a, die out because die out. It's, okay. it's, a, it's, it's a gene that kills them off. Yeah, so it's not a long-lasting thing that will then just get mixed in Jurassic Park style. 
Wow, that didn't feel as succinct as when I said it on <laughs> my I, video. <laughs> and, and and this is just to reduce the population of, of this particular. I didn't. I did cover it. Yeah. <laughs> and this is just to reduce the population of this particular type of mosquito, so that it's not transmitting these viruses. Yeah, they can go in and manipulate, or they can release a million mosquitoes and knock the population of only one species down by ninety-five percent. That's in amazing. One- yeah, and so they were releasing them in South Florida during a dengue outbreak. People don't realize that, but like you, you don't want dengue. It's really bad. Uh, and so the, it's a little bit of a test, but it's like we should be testing on this and putting money into it. And so I yeah. I kind of was bummed that people were so anti It was incredibly this. negative. And it was like, why? Even even people who were very sciencey, like and or like cared about the environment and stuff – they were somehow against this because they lumped it into GMOs, which, which, which it is. Which are also it's misunderstood. But like people, I just I get annoyed by people who care for the environment but are lazy in their thinking with GMOs because GMOs can help people. Yeah, and they have helped a lot of people with with uh, various resistances and crops from from dra- drought to um, you know uh, resistance against different insects. It's, in my it's only, fed a lot of only, people. Oh, they do. And I think the only reason I'm for them is I dated a girl who was a botanist who worked in one of the GMO labs in Hawaii. And she like fills me in on everything. She's like, we wouldn't have papayas in Hawaii if we didn't modify them and make them disease resistant. Why are people anti what we're doing? We're just trying to help. So all the people I ever met in grad school were trying to help the world, but they were getting a bad rap. So I felt the need to speak out. The other thing is that, and I, and I think that this is the the easiest way for 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 me to understand it when it was first explained to me to be to be like, well, actually, this is in a in a weird way, it's kind of a natural process that's happening anyway. We're just forcing the hand of nature because there are mutations that happen through every generation of you know whatever it might be, and we're just basically forcing that particular mutation by reaching into the genetic code of it and manipulating it in a way so that we get the outcome we want. You could do exactly the same thing by breeding uh, lots of different uh, different generations together until you got the mutation that you want, but it could take forever and you could end up with loads of results that you are, are not desirable outcomes. I mean, that's that's kind of how we got dogs, through breeding i mean it, it, it's it's gmo through natural um processes right well and you know i think you need to always probably say at the same time but with caution you know that's why you have regulations and people often don't understand how much testing is involved in the sciences before they release something like this it's the same with uh, biocontrol and introducing animals to get rid of pests and stuff like that. Like back in the day, it was willy nilly. Now it's not. Th- it's not that, and we have to trust the system a little bit more. But it- it's quite rigorous. Yeah, it is. Now the the last thing I wanted to touch on before I let you go, uh, you talked about um, sharks and f- um, catch and release was something which came up in one of your your videos. And I talked about it some weeks ago, but only very briefly with Sarah Roberts. And she was talking about the, the scientific research that was being linked to uh, like sports fishermen for sharks. And again, it's, it's like it's one of those topics where the idea of recreationally fishing for these, 
you're very charismatic marine uh, marine animals can sit pretty uncomfortably with people. But you were showing a, an example where it was being used to to further our understanding of the species. Yeah, so I went out with a shark researcher who I knew in grad school named Dr. Nick Whitney, and his whole research is is been evo- uh, revolved around uh, putting tags on sharks. It's like essentially accelerometers, which are what you have in your cell phone and can tell you how far you've walked, and puts those on shark fins, and then collects them later because they have little buoys on them, and is able to tell are things like sh- catch and release successful. Because you can tell once you catch a shark, did it live or did it die based on its swimming pattern. So they have all that data logged via looking at them in aquariums and stuff. And it's it's mostly just, I think, fascinating to get a feel for how catch and release has worked in the past. Like, is it that all of them are being released or is it that most of them are dying? Nobody had ever looked at the science. And so this was really important and uh yeah, you know, and for the most part, it seemed like it, it was suitable and it was was working appropriately. Um, they were getting most quite a bit of success, but it's dependent on the species too. But that all that's just important because it, it needs to. Uh, you need that data to make management decisions. Absolutely, yeah. and this is something that I've always you know wondered. And it has been very understudied. There's been a massive increase in the amount of catch and, re- catch and release across species, you know, whether that be Atlantic salmon here where I live or, or shark species um, out at sea. And it's very much seen as, um, I mean, at the moment, it's very much seen as the kind of the ethical thing to do. And many rivers here, you have no choice. You have to catch and release salmon uh, owing to the massive declines that we've had. And... The, the the big question is well how many of these are actually surviving if we are go if we're putting these animals through all the stress and I've had discussions before about well can you justify that and in my mind in, in the rivers it very much has to do with well what what is what is the risk and and this is the research like so what is the risk from catching this fish and putting it back okay well one out of I, i'm making these numbers up one out of 10 die okay one out of 10 die but the fact that all these people are fishing the river are putting x number of pounds into the the river system every year which is being used for research and improvements in the system which is actually ending up in so many more fish in the river so you can do a bit of an analysis there to work out whether this is a risk you're willing to take um, for the gains that you would get but without this kind of information like the research that's being done in the video that you were showing on the sharks you can't really make those decisions if you don't know (laughs) what the survival rate of of the fish that you're releasing is right and i think this is a really important thing to to note is that um, the scientists that are doing this work are working directly with the fishermen and they are pro-fishing. You know what I mean? Like they want it all to work as a nice system. So they're not in the world of activism saying, is this moral or is this not? They're just saying like, let's look at the science and let's come up with the best thing that works for this particular ecosystem. And they get quite annoyed by people who are just shark activists um, without understanding how the real world works. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, but because what happens is if you get the fishermen turning against the science, they can't do can't do their work right now there's a pretty the fishermen are like 
quite intrigued by the science and they like it. But yeah, because they have a for for most people who pursue an activity like that, or whether it be you know, hunting deer, you have this a very deep connection and respect for the thing that you are pursuing. And you want to understand it more. And it's not about, it's absolutely not about trying to remove the last one. And I I don't know anybody in my circle of, of friends who are involved in hunting or fishing who would undertake that activity for a particular species if they thought in any way it was going to be detrimental to that species. They do it because they are, it's functioning under a system where we can, we can take and harvest these uh, surplus animals essentially without affecting negatively the population and we can gain some sort of sustenance from it. It might be a bit different with the the sharks because these are all being um, caught and released for the most part, I think. So no one's actually yeah, eating well, them. You know, the weird thing I found with the sharks in North America is that sh- North American mar- sharks are well managed and it actually works in North America. So when we're talking about shark fishing, sometimes the conversation becomes we should never fish sharks. But that's because it's not done right in a lot of places. Are they yeah. able to take some species of shark? As in, um, yeah, I think yeah. I don't know. I don't know exactly how it works, so I can't. Re- I shouldn't really comment on it. But yeah, they they fish sharks. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I actually just watched a, a some <laughs> not. A quite um, a quite harrowing video on the interview I just did before speaking to you, which was the sharks being uh, commercially harvested off the coast of Congo Brazzaville, and the beaches just lined with these sharks. the The main driver is shark fins for the Asian market, right? Um, but they're just they've absolutely decimated the populations of sharks in, in that part of the world off the west coast of Africa. And that particular country is harvesting more sharks than any other single country off the, the west coast of Africa, even though they only have 177 kilometers of shoreline. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many, it's so complex. I mean, I know the shark researcher that I talked to was, you know, that they're kind of a fan of using the entire shark when you actually, if you actually fish it, you should use all of it. Yeah. But they can't, they can't use the fins anymore. So it's a little bit of a problem for fishermen. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, because we're banning of, it worldwide because fishing is not well regulated. Yeah. But in theory, you should be able to do it in the U.S. So there's, you know, but yeah. nobody's pushing for it really hard in the U.S., but there are fishermen that like could benefit a lot from using the entire animal. Yeah, it's, it's a funny one. It, it yeah. does. It's like, what well, if you're going to allow the harvest of something, then make the most of it. And it, it was, this was the thing that I just made no sense to me with the the British Columbia um, grizzly bear restrictions from like a year or two years ago, where they put those restrictions in place and to discourage, because they, they were only put in place because people disliked the notion of someone killing a bear as a kind of a, as a trophy in inverted commas. So they said, okay, well, you can still hunt the bears, but you've got to leave the skin and skull there and the claws. So you can only take the meat out. So, well, so you're, you don't actually care about whether the bear is dying or not. Is it, would it not be far better that if the same number of bears are going to die under a regulated system, and th- these, these were like the harvestable numbers that were being monitored year on year, that you actually utilize everything? And, and what does it matter what the motive of somebody is if they want to keep that, you know, if you're still okay with the bear dying and that made no sense to me whatsoever. 
Yeah, well, that's like it is with all of the things. There's no real cut, cut and dry answer. It's all trying to figure out what works, you know, like, I don't know. And every, every situation is a little bit different. It is. <laughs> Hopefully and we have good people in those places making decisions. That's what you hope. But. Absolutely. It is a complex situation. And on that note, Rob, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for giving me so much of your time to like dive into all of these topics and just geek out on subjects with you because it's it's fascinating yeah, to talk well, to you. I love gotten to talk to about this since the pandemic started so this is <laughs> I, I love your youtube channel it's brilliant i i hope everyone who listens to this podcast goes and checks it out um and your and your website cool. as well right <laughs> oh and your book yeah yeah I get used to promoting my book now mother Absolutely. nature is not trying to kill you okay Available at bookstores near you. Is that what I'm supposed to say? I don't know. That is exactly what you said. We're perfectly done. Almost like you practiced it. You'll be able to check out all of the all of the details of how to find Rob in either the show notes, but on iTunes, they have a limited character count, which is really frustrating. So if it's if you're listening to this on iTunes, which so many people do, and there's information, it's like, I want to know more information, then just visit my website, which is um, barandpace.com. And then all of the information, all of the tags for Rob and where to watch all the stuff that we've been talking about are on there under the, the podcast tab. Um, and so you can go and you can go binge all those YouTube videos one evening since we're all in lockdown again. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Rob. Great to speak to you. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Join me in a week's time when we are going to be diving once again into the science of conservation.